So today's passage is a little long. I'll warn you in advance. It is uh, found in Judges chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 24, which is found on page 203 in your pew Bibles. Um, and it's a longer passage simply because it's a long story, and um, I wanted to make sure that we were able to touch on all the major parts of the story. So please follow along with me. Judges 4, verses 1 through 24. This is God's word. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hashereth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. Barak said to her, I will go... I'm sorry, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell, will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak, Barak rather, to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite was separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Hashereth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Hashereth Agoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. 
And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say, No. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, Barak was pursuing Sisera. And Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you were seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Here ends the reading of God's word. So I'd like to read to you... um, by way of introduction to the sermon, just a a short piece of modern poetry, which was written about 50 years ago by an American poet named Joe Raposo. And you probably haven't heard of him. He's not uh, terribly well known. Uh, But the title of the program, of, of of the poem rather, is One of These Things. One of These Things. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the others by the time I finish my song? And by your looks, I can tell that uh, you have probably not heard that before. Uh, But this is only poetry in the broadest uh, sense of the term. This is actually a a song that was written for Sesame Street. Um, And it was part of this... Reasoning, reasoning game that they would play on Sesame Street. I grew up watching Sesame Street. The, the first years of Sesame Street was when I was uh, watching it. Uh, and there would be usually four different letters or four different objects or something like that, three of which would be the same and one would be different. And so the, the, the game was, can you reason out which one of these things is different? And I expected that to be funny, but... Uh, it wasn't, so I'm sorry about that. Um, but it, it does introduce, um, badly, one of the main themes of the story uh, of Deborah today, and that is that in one major way, Deborah was different from the other 12 judges named in the book of Judges. And I'll give you a hint. The way in which Deborah is different from the other judges begins with a W. Can you guess... Can you guess what it is? That's right. Unlike all of the other judges, Deborah was not a war general. She, she did not lead troops into battle. But maybe that's not what, what you were thinking of. Maybe, um, how about this? Deborah was the only uh, one among the 13 judges who was a prophet. Well, maybe that's still not what you had in mind. How about this? Deborah is the only one of the judges who wisely decided court cases in Israel. No? 
Well, Deborah is the only one of the judges who was a wife. And maybe I'm, I'm getting closer to what you were thinking. Of course, Deborah is the only judge who was a woman. So, you know, we, we look at Deborah and we think that she stands out simply because she was the only one among 13 judges who was a woman. And yet there were many things about Deborah that distinguish her from the, the other judges. Um, in many ways, she's not what we would have expected as a judge. Hence the, the title of the sermon, Deborah, Not What I Expected. And the way in which God provided deliverance for his people through her was unexpected as well. And so we're going to look at how God provided that deliverance using three points. Uh, number one, an unusual judge. Number two, an atypical general. And number three, an unexpected ally. So the first point, an unusual judge. Allow me to go off on a bit of a, just a rabbit trail for a second to address the elephant in the room, and forgive me for mixing those metaphors. You don't go on a rabbit trail to talk about an elephant. You go on an elephant trail. But the, the, the most noticeable difference between Deborah and the other judges is that Deborah is a woman. And, and what is a woman doing uh, among 12 other uh, judges in the room? Um, while we won't get into this discussion at length in the sermon, uh, although God does typically raise up men to lead his people, in this case he chose a woman. And we aren't told why Deborah was called to be a judge. We only know that she was. And one of the things that I think this teaches about how God works is that he doesn't always do things in the ways that we would expect. He, he doesn't always work in ways that fit into our categories of how we think he works. There are three heroes in this account, and two of the three are women, Deborah and Jael. And that is exactly the way the Lord wanted all of this to work out. And so let's not presume that the Lord either hasn't in the past or won't in the present and the future use women to perform, perform rather tremendous acts of service in the church or in his kingdom. Women, after all, have the same Holy Spirit as do men, and they're a critical part of the church. And we believe that God has called men to be the elders and pastors in the church, but women are also called to be actively involved in teaching and edifying and encouraging and discipling in serving and in proclaiming the gospel in various ways. And the work to which women are called in the church is no less important than the work to which men are called. And that's all we'll say for that point right now. You can corner me after the service and we can, we can talk some more at length about uh, uh, the role of women in, in the church. But getting back on track, what else makes Deborah unusual is that she has been so differently gifted and so differently called than uh, many of her male counterparts. First, we read in verse 4 that Deborah is a prophetess or a female prophet. And there are only five female prophets in the entire Old Testament. So Deborah belongs to a very small and exclusive uh, club. We don't know the, the extent or the breadth of Deborah's prophetic call, but especially considering that Israel was fairly disorganized at the time, it, was, it didn't have any central leadership, and it was kind of analogous to the way that the 13 British colonies uh, were in America prior to the American Revolution. Uh, I assume that Deborah was both a civil leader 
and a religious leader to her people. We know that she was a civil leader because she was widely consulted by the people of Israel to resolve their various disputes. We see that in verse 5. And if she was widely consulted for her judgments, we assume that the people recognized in some way that her gifts of wisdom and judgment were from the Lord for the building up of his people. And she also summoned Barak in verse 6 to come out and receive instruction from the Lord. And that Barak came to her and listened to her instructions as a sign that she had authority delegated by the Lord and recognized by the people. Otherwise, why would he have come? And since Israel was more or less a theocracy at that time, and a theocracy is a system of government where uh, others ordained by God rule in his name, then Deborah was the one of her generation who counseled and proclaimed God's word to his people. So she was uh, a religious and a civil leader. But she also had a unique relationship to Israel. Uh, and uh, let, me, let me preface this by saying I'm going to be referring back and forth to chapter 5, which is probably headed in your Bibles as the song of Deborah and Barak. This is the victory song that Deborah and Barak uh, sang after the victory of Israel over Canaan was complete. Um, and it gives some color commentary, gives some more uh, descriptive details of what happens in chapter 4. So Deborah says of herself in chapter 5, verse 7, that she arose as a, quote, mother in Israel, end quote. And I think what she's getting at here is that everyday life as it had been in Israel had come to a standstill because of the oppression of Israel's enemies. Look, look at what it says. In verse 7 it says, The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. Um, and I'm sorry, going back to verse 6. Um, the highways were abandoned. The travelers kept to the byways. And so what she's saying here is the people of Israel were so threatened and so afraid by the the, the Canaanites, that they were afraid to come out of their houses and travel from place to place to do ordinary business. That they would, they would take secret routes to try to avoid uh, getting stopped and harassed by the Canaanites. So the Canaanites were really uh, deeply ingrained and, and had made the, the people of Israel deeply fearful of them. But the fact that the Lord raised up Deborah and through her leadership and the accompanying victory over Jabin gave rebirth uh, to the nation. And, and in that sense, Deborah is a mother to Israel. She, she gave it rebirth. The, the people were no longer afraid to go out and exist as a people. They, they were able to go back on the highways. They were able to uh, engage in business without fear of oppression. Um, and that rebirth, that temporary rebirth in Israel at that time, of course, points forward about 1,500 years, 1,400 years maybe, to the, the birth of Jesus. A third thing that makes Deborah unusual among all the judges is, is that she is probably the most distinguished of all of the judges in the book and that her actions and words consistently pointed toward God. And if you stop and think for a moment about uh, many of the other judges with whom you're familiar from the book, you realize that some of them had some pretty fatal flaws. <coughs> Excuse me. So you think of someone like Gideon, 
uh, who not only seemed to really be struggling with trusting God, but then he, he fell off the rails pretty, pretty quickly after uh, the victory that the Lord had given to him. And you look at Samson, whose life was racked by different kinds of, of uh, sin that had strongholds in his life. And you look at the, the judges later on in the book who just do really unspeakable things and, and seem to have no view of God whatsoever. Deborah is very different. Uh, you see in, in chapters 4 and 5 nothing but Deborah's actions being above reproach and Deborah consistently pointing people to the Lord. You see that in chapter 5 uh, where the way that she describes what happens gives God the glory. Not her. She gives God the glory. And so she's distinguished uh, in, in many ways as probably the most God-honoring of all of the judges. So what can we learn from Deborah? Well, she was a godly woman who obeyed the word of the Lord. And we know that given the culture of the ancient Near East, her role as a judge and a leader in the community was probably very countercultural and probably made a lot of people very anxious. She probably had to endure a lot of criticism from the people around her, asking, why would you as a woman uh, presume to exercise authority over us? So let me ask you this question as, as we reflect on uh, the fact that Deborah's call and her actions were very countercultural. In what ways might the Lord be calling you to be countercultural in your own lives? Whether you're a man or a woman, where might the Lord be calling you to be obedient to his word, even though uh, others around you might oppose you? Perhaps he's inviting you to stand up for what he says, rather than to give in to what the people around you say and do. Or perhaps he's inviting you to pray for someone in your heart when everything within you uh, makes you want to hate that person because they've wounded you deeply. Or perhaps he's inviting you to believe his promises even when you're in the midst of hard circumstances and it seems foolish to hope. What is the Lord calling you to do that's countercultural? So let's move on to point two and talk about an atypical general, Barak. So a, a little story uh, to preface this. In the late 18th, I'm sorry, the late 19th and early 20th centuries, there was a female phenom uh, in this country by the name of Annie Oakley. And she was actually uh, the first American female superstar. I mean, there, there were famous women before her, certainly, but she was probably the first one. And, and this, you know, this is around the time of uh, mass media for the first time with the Telegraph and with newspapers uh, and then with uh, with moving pictures, she was probably the first person that a lot of people recognized and a lot of people uh, looked up to. And what made her special? What was the, the essence of her stardom? She was a sharpshooter, and she could shoot a gun really, really well. Here's a description of what she could do from the Encyclopedia Britannica. It says, at 30 paces, she could split a playing card held on edge. 
Can you imagine that? Like a playing card on edge with, with a bullet, which is wider than the card. She could split that card uh, in half. That's, that's amazing. She could hit dimes tossed into the air. Uh, she could shoot a cigarette out of her husband's lips. And I don't know that I would want to be uh, her husband if that was you know, part of the marriage vows. Um, that, that might be a deal stopper. Um, and she could also snuff out the flame of a burning candle with a whizzing bullet. So she, she was not to be trifled with. And kind of like Deborah, Annie Oakley was a woman who became a superstar in a male-dominated field. There was a Broadway show written about Annie Oakley called Annie Get Your Gun, uh, which Irving Berlin wrote uh, back in the first part of the 20th century. One of the songs from that show is sung between Annie and Frank Butler, who was another sharpshooter and in real life uh, at, at first was her competitor in a, in a competition and then became her husband. Um, and uh, the song is called Anything I Can Do, You Can Do Better. And in the song, Annie and Frank name the different activities that they can do well, and they always end their, their boasting with the, the, the words, anything you can do, I can do better. And so here's the, the proverbial battle of the sexes. You know, who's better at this, men or, or women? And, and there's been a lot that has come out of this battle of the sexes over the years. I'm, I'm sure it's been the subject of a lot of stories, a lot of arguments, a lot of sitcoms, uh, and I'm sure more than a share of divorces uh, over the years. Uh, and really, it's, you know, we, we shouldn't make light of it, it's really pride and arrogance on display. But that kind of competition is the exact opposite of the way that we see Barack um, act toward Deborah in our passage today. He doesn't compete uh, with Deborah. To the contrary, he insists in verse 8 that the only way he will follow God's command is what? If she goes with him. And so instead of competing with her, he submits to her. And I looked at four different commentaries to prepare the sermon, and there was no agreement among the commentators as to why Barak insisted on Deborah's presence uh, on this military campaign. Two of the commentators suggested that uh, Barak didn't fully believe God's word as presented through Deborah, and so he wanted her to, um, in a sense, put her money where her mouth was. Uh, so he was saying, if I'm going to put my life on the line, you have to do the same. But the other two commentators suggested that Barak respected the Lord and told Deborah to accompany him because he wanted a, a visible reminder of God's presence with him as he went into battle. So I can't be certain, no one can be certain what Barak's motivation was, but I do think that it was at least mixed, if not wrong, because there was a consequence for his refusal to do uh, what Deborah uh, asked him to, to do the first time. We read Deborah's response uh, to Barak's request that he go with her in verse 9. Uh, it says, I will surely go with you. This is Deborah speaking. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So we have to assume from the pronouncement of a consequence to Barak that the Lord was displeased with him because of his lack of obedience. 
Why didn't he comply completely? Why did he put a condition on obedience? My guess is that it had something to do with those 900 chariots of iron that Sisera had. So all of Israel's soldiers were on foot. And Sisera had these 900 chariots of iron. We see that mentioned, we see the number mentioned twice in chapter 4. And and the fact that they were chariots present is mentioned more frequently than that. Um, And these chariots of iron were the tanks of their day. They, They weren't something to be trifled with. They could plow through foot soldiers uh, the same way that a plow uh, being drawn by a mule or or a tractor goes through the earth. There's nothing that can stop them. The the, uh, soldiers of Israel were armed with spears and bows and arrows and clubs. And to have what I'm guessing is several hundred pounds of iron uh, coming at you at 30 or 40 miles an hour, um, it's kind of hard to stop something like that. So... Israel was definitely at a disadvantage, and my guess is that's at least part of the reason why Barak uh, demurred to be kind. And so the Barak we meet in chapter 4 is a general who is not terribly secure in his calling uh, or in his mission, and he's not uh, so sure that God's promise to defeat Sisera is valid. Um, even though God does say through Deborah in verse 7 that he will give Sisera into Barak's hand. And then, even when they are uh, poised on Mount Tabor, Barak seems to still be hemming and hawing because it's Deborah who has to tell him to go on the offensive. In verse 14, it's Deborah who calls him to begin the attack with another assurance that the Lord lacked. She reminds him, does not the Lord go out before you? And God indeed does act. We read in verse 15, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. God always comes through. And God invites us to obedience every day in numerous ways. He does that through the objective leading of his word in scripture, but he also does it subjectively, as the Holy Spirit convinces us what we need to do in our hearts. And so my question for you is this, are there ways that, like Barak, you've been putting conditions on your obedience to God by saying things like, okay, God, I'll obey you if you do this. Or I'll obey you if this this circumstance changes first. What are some ways that the Lord might be calling on you to repent of your conditional obedience, which truly is not obedience at all? Psalm 143 is a penitential psalm. It's a psalm of lament. And it's written by David, probably um, two to three hundred years after the events of uh, Deborah and Barak. David is being oppressed by an enemy, and he's asking for God's help in Psalm 143. And so what does David do in the midst of his oppression? Does he hem and haw? Does he he equivocate about God's faithfulness to come through and deliver him from the circumstances that he faces. No, he 
He remembers what God has done in history to help him and to deliver his people. And he preaches the sermon of God's faithfulness to his own heart. Here's what he said. This is, uh, says rather, this is from Psalm 143, verse 5. He says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. And so in the midst of hard circumstances where, where David uh, uses the language earlier in the psalm of literally uh, an enemy's hands being around his throat, he says, I'm going to remember, Lord, what you have done. And I'm going to trust that you will be faithful to me in the present. And this is exactly what you and I can do when, like uh, David, like Barak, um, we, we face hard things. When we face challenges that seem too big uh, to manage on our own. We are invited to remember all that the Lord has done for us and for all of his people throughout history. And that testimony is meant to give us the grace to believe that if God has delivered his people in the past, he's able to do it again in the present. One final word before we leave Barak and move on to the final point, and that is, despite Barak's seeming unwillingness to trust God at first, God does hold him up as a picture of a faithful leader. Barak is named both in 1 Samuel 12 and in Hebrews 11 as a man who faithfully believed the Lord and delivered Israel from her enemies. So why does God do this? Why does God lift up doubting Barak, equivocating Barak as a paragon of faith? Well, what it tells me is that God doesn't demand perfection from any of his people. He knows very well the struggles that Barak likely had, and yet he still counted Barak's faith as worthy of commending to us as an example. At the end of the day, Barak did what the Lord commanded him to do. So my question to you is, do you struggle with your faith? Do you struggle to believe that God is good or that he is for you or that he can help you or maybe even that he loves you and has saved you? Don't let that struggle keep you from him. Barak's faith was in a God he had never seen, but you and I have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for us and was vindicated by the Father and made alive again in order that you and I would be able to look at him and believe that he is good. You and I cannot see him physically now. We will one day. But through the work of the Holy Spirit, writing God's word on our hearts, we believe, we have faith. And even though we have not seen Jesus in the flesh, we believe that what we know about him is true and that he loves us. And that all of God's promises for us are as good as delivered through him. So don't let a struggle with your faith keep you from crying out to God. That moves us on to the third point, an unexpected ally. Why is Jael an unexpected ally? Well, look in verse 17. Jael's husband Heber was a friend of Jabin, the king of whose army had been oppressing Israel for 20 years. And so evidently Heber and Jabin had at some point signed some sort of non-aggression pact 
where they promised not to attack each other and to support each other in various ways. They, they were friends with one another. And so when the Canaanite commander Sisera flees the battle, cowardly, cowardly uh, to save his life, he runs to his king's friend Heber for protection. And there he meets Heber's wife, Jael. This is one of the great ironies in the book of Judges, but it's a threefold irony. Uh, the first part of the irony is uh, that the wife of his friend would turn out to be his ex- executioner and that Cesara, Cicero rather, would be undone by a woman. And here's why that's an irony. We don't know exactly uh, what human motivations led Jael to deceive and then kill Cicero, but we recall that Deborah prophesied back in verse 9 of chapter 4 that due to Barak's reluctance to follow God's command, that God would sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And that woman was Jael. But the double irony here is that Sisera evidently had a track record of sexually abusing the women in the cities that he conquered. We know this from Judges 5, which is Deborah and Barak's uh, song of victory, which recounts the events of the battle and provides some additional details to what happened. In chapter 5, verse 30, Deborah and Barak muse as to what must have been going on in Sisera's mother's mind when she was waiting for her son to come back from the battle and he was delayed in returning. And these are her supposed thoughts from verse 30. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. A womb or two for every man. Well, what that means is it's a crude way of saying that Cicero was known for capturing and sexually abusing uh, the women in the cities that he conquered. And so the double irony for Cicero is that he would meet his end at the hands of a woman. But the third part of that, the, the, the third irony, is that Jael used a tent peg and a mallet to end Cicero's life. And here's why that's ironic. Tim Keller, the the pastor and uh, preacher, points out that in the ancient Near East, it was traditionally women's work to uh, set up and maintain the tents in an encampment. And so Jael, being a woman, would be very used to using a tent peg and a mallet in order to set up and uh, fix the tents. And so she was merely using the the tools of her womanly trade to kill a man who despised women. And so it seems a a fitting end uh, for a man who, uh, in many ways, uh, was a reprobate sinner. So in conclusion, what can we take away from the account of Deborah? Despite all the twists and turns in the story, I think the story of Deborah is one of God's covenant love and his faithfulness to his people. And you might not see that on the surface, but that really is one of the, the undercurrents, one of, one of the, uh, uh, the secondary themes throughout the book of Judges. That even though God's people rejected him, and, and that's the cycle we see in Judges over and over again. We saw it last week, we see it this week, we'll see it next week. Um, that the people of Israel turn away from God, 
God allows them to fall into the hands of the people who are oppressing them, they are uh, they're suffering because of that. They cry out to God for deliverance. God raises up a judge. The judge frees them from the dominion of those people, and they experience some number of years of, uh, of peace. The, the fact that God would send deliverer after deliverer, and in this case, he sent a team of three deliverers, Deborah, Barak, and Jael, to deliver God's covenant people from danger uh, and oppression is a sign of God's mercy. God continually sends people to relieve, relieve Israel's suffering, even though Israel keeps falling back into sin. We continue to see that covenant faithfulness and love, and, and grace is what the Bible calls them, uh, we see that it continues to this very day. Because in the fullness of time, God sent his son Jesus to be simultaneously the ultimate judge, the ultimate Deborah, who perfectly delivers his people, but also the one who was judged in our place, simultaneously judge and judged. But unlike Deborah, the freedom that Jesus has won for his people doesn't last just a generation or two. It's everlasting. And unlike Deborah, Jesus lives again and reigns over everything that is. And when we feel harassed and hopeless, God invites us to look to him and find our hope and our deliverer. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, delivering us from uh, our oppressors. We know, Lord, that... Um, the, the situation in which Deborah found herself is quite different from the situation we find ourselves in today. We know that our oppressors are Satan and uh, the flesh and the world. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have freed us from the dominion of those things uh, against us. Lord, we pray that you would give us... Uh, faithfulness as we continue to walk out our salvation, as we continue, uh, just as Jael put the, the tent peg in Sisera's head, uh, as we continue to put sin to death in our mortal bodies. Lord, I pray that bit by bit, by your power, by your grace, we would look more and think more and act more like Jesus himself. All this we ask in his holy name. Amen.